Did that even sound like I said Greg Lambert? <laughs> it, it, it did. <laughs> okay. All of, a, all of a sudden, everything just came out of my nose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going on. That's going on. Welcome to the Geek and Review the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Happy Festivus, one and all. As you head out on your holiday travels and you need something to listen to, don't forget to subscribe to the Geek and Review on your favorite podcast platform. And as you go to Grandma's house to meet up with your closest relatives and they ask, hey, what's a good podcast I need to listen to? Go ahead and tell them something like Reply All. <laughs> <laughs> but then you can slip in the Geek and Review as well. Yeah, well, I'm not really expecting any of my closest relatives to talk about podcasts at all. <laughs> um, they're not really, they're still not sure what I do for a living. So if I tell them anything like that, they, they might think I'm a real broadcast professional if they listen. Yeah, and I talk a big game, but uh, I've never suggested to my mom that she subscribe to the podcast. So, hey, take it for that. <laughs> well, at, at a minimum, though, it's a good answer for when your third cousin's spouse starts asking you for legal advice. You know, you, <laughs> Never you, happens. <laughs> Just tell tell them what I do. One, go hire yourself a local lawyer. That mm-hmm. you'll do yourself a favor, and then tell them to subscribe to the Geek and Review. It's a win win. Win win. So, Greg, today's guest is Marcy Borgel-Schunk of Tilt Institute, which consults with law firms and legal professionals on a number of skills training. But we focus on the need for leadership training in law firms. As we've said for years, great lawyers don't necessarily equate to great leaders. Marcy walks us through some of the things that she helps law firm leadership with on helping everyone be better leaders. We also have our monthly visit from Emily Feltrin of the American Association of Law Libraries, and she gives us a year in review and a wrap-up of what the lame duck Congress is up to and what the 116th Congress has in store for 2019. That is in addition to all the investigating of the president. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, all right. Move, we, moving on. We'll, we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Now it's time for some information inspirations. So what do you have for us, Marlene? ILTA came out with its most recent digital white paper. Now, I'm going to attempt to summarize one article each episode, basically until I get bored, or Greg gets bored, or you all get bored. (laughs) Even if I don't get to all of them, you can always read the articles. We've provided the link on the website. So first off, Cindy Thurston Barr and Vichelle Agnerotti co-wrote an article on what CAM legal professionals can learn from CAM in the Big Four. And they divided it into streams, um, research and content creation, tech assessment and implementation, adoption and change management. There was a big focus on account management in the big four. So a third of the KM group monitored and service key client accounts. So client insights were continually gathered into reports and toolkits and disseminated via the internet. Uh, so there's there's a real process and it's ongoing and it's accessible. Another highlight was the internet had multilingual pages, industry practice, geographic reason, competitors, clients, and business trend pages as well. So information seemed to be more transparent and accessible and encompassing than what I've seen in many legal intranets. 
Finally, there was a highlight on collaboration tools. So that helps eliminate the PTI emails. It creates a searchable repository of answers and connects people geographically. So I thought it was a very good article. Yeah, it's uh, good stuff on there. So I'm looking forward to to you reviewing all these so I don't have to read them all. So. (laughs) (laughs) So Marlene, do you remember back in the 1990s when the Internet was going to be this great library of public domain materials? No, I don't remember that. <laughs> you were too young. I was. I wasn't old enough. <laughs> yeah, 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 me either. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, someone in Congress decided that what we really needed to do was extend the copyright for a few decades before any new items went into the public domain. <laughs> yes. And and I'll give you a hint. He was a co-singer of a song called "I Got You, Babe," and was best known for his uh, mustache and much more talented wife. Right. <laughs> so Sonny Bono might have had his name associated with the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, but it was actually a famous little mouse on a steamboat that was the real reason behind why it took decades for new items to come into the public domain. We really haven't had anything come into the public domain since 1998. Yeah. So, well, the good news is that come January 1st, 2019, hundreds of thousands of songs, articles, books, films, and other copyrighted material that was published in 1923 will roll into the public domain. So I'm excited that we can legally sing, yes, we have no bananas on the show after the first of the year. We can't sing And we'll it. do it. <laughs> we, we can't sing it now, but we can sing it in, in a week after, and a half. In a week so, and a half. January 1st. <laughs> I'm not all that happy with the fact that it took 20 years and that we've been waiting and, and in reality. We should be talking about things from 1943 that are coming into the public domain, but, you know, hey, I'll take what I can get. So joining us as she does each month from Washington, D.C. is Emily Feltrin. Emily is the Director of Government Relations of the American Association of Law Libraries, and she is here to give us an update on important news regarding the government's impact on legal information. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Hey, Greg. So this month we want to do a bit of a year in review. So I'm just going to kind of sit back here and let Emily catch us up on what's been going on with government relations and advocacy issues. So take it away, Emily. Okay, thanks, Greg. This was certainly a busy year in Washington. Despite all of the major policy debates and distractions on matters unrelated to information policy, there was progress on several issues of interest to those of us who champion legal information. One of the top among those was the passage of report language that directed the Library of Congress to provide access to Congressional Research Service reports after decades of advocacy. This was an issue AAAL had worked on since the 1990s, when the late Senator John McCain sponsored a bill in support of greater access to the reports written by some of the foremost policy experts on Capitol Hill. I'm pleased to say that the transparency and library communities united around this one, and we had many passionate friends on the Hill, including past House Legislative Appropriations Subcommittee Chairman Kevin Yoder, Congressman Leonard Lance, Congressman Mike Quigley, and many others who championed this issue until we finally saw approval of report language requiring public access in the fiscal year 2018 appropriations omnibus package. The reports are now being made available at crsreports.congress.gov. Yeah, I have to mention that a couple of those names are going to be leaving at the end of the year. Kevin Yoder, uh, I know he's le- he's leaving. He got defeated. And I believe Leonard Lance retired, or did he get defeated? 
Yeah, he's leaving as well. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate that we are losing a couple of friends on the Hill, but I'm glad that we did get CRS reports through when we did. Well, this is why we pay you the big bucks, Emily. Go make some new friends. (laughs) Luckily, we have allies here in Washington as well. (laughs) We also saw greater funding for the Library of Congress and Law Library of Congress, as well as for the Government Publishing Office which helped to ensure access to official, authentic legal information through support for digitization and preservation, the Federal Depository Library Program, and other activities that promote permanent public access to information. Greg, you even testified before the House Appropriations Subcommittee on the Legislative Branch in favor of adequate funding for these agencies, as I'm sure you remember. Mm-hmm. And in an age of shrinking budgets and a growing universe of government information, These funding boosts were much needed and very much appreciated. Yeah, that was one of the highlights of my term as president of AALL was getting up there and making sure our voice was heard on the Hill. So I appreciate you setting that up. And it it was actually one of the most fun things I've ever done. Just shows you what kind of nerd I am. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, it, it was really satisfying, I think, all around. AALL also worked closely with the House Committee on House Administration in support of the Federal Depository Library Program Modernization Act, H.R. 5305, which was favorably considered by the committee in the spring. And we saw progress on bills to increase access to court records through PACER, as we've previously discussed here on the podcast. Mm. People are still waiting for their free PACER, by the way. That's right. We'll keep working on that in the new Congress, along with a number of other priorities that AAAL has for the 116. AAAL also worked to stop proposals to eliminate print legal materials, and we worked with congressional offices to ensure continued access to the print. Yeah, that's one of the issues that I think may confuse some people that are not in the know. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's, you know, why should we have print anymore because it's all online? But it turns out, not necessarily is everything online, or if, it's, if it is, it's not necessarily accessible. So it's, it's one of those things where I think AAAL's voice has been needed to make sure that things that need to continue because of the logistics of how the information is disseminated, I think it's been a good thing for us. So That's thank right. you. Absolutely. And I think there's also some confusion sometimes on the Hill and elsewhere about how eliminating print for certain constituencies, such as eliminating mandatory or automatic distribution of print to congressional offices or federal agencies, that's different from distribution to the public, say, through the Federal Depository Library Program. And sometimes there's confusion that if you eliminate one, you're eliminating all. So we work very hard to make sure that public access to the print is maintained because, as you say, it is used and it is important to be able to access print legal materials in many different circumstances. Yes, it is. So again, thanks for uh, making sure that people are able to access that. Absolutely. All that said, we certainly didn't win them all. The House passed H.R. 1695, the Register of Copyright Selection and Accountability Act, a mouthful there, also being considered by the Senate, which would allow the president to select the head of the Copyright Office. And there was continued talk of making the Copyright Office an independent agency, which we believe would politicize the office and allow industry interests to unduly influence the office's important work. And we witnessed the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission's rollback of net neutrality protections, despite Senate approval of a bipartisan Congressional Review Act resolution to restore net neutrality. Those fights and more will go on in the new Congress, I'm sure, 
as we continue to advocate for improved access to justice, a more open government, greater access to legal information, and privacy for library users. Yeah, I think we're seeing, and I don't think this is, is necessarily new, but I think it's what's new is just how blatant it is. Uh, I think it's like in the old days, you know, there was corruption around, but I like my corruption a little more behind the scenes than I'm seeing it these days. Right. Uh, but I think I think you're going to see these flipping back and forth on issues like this with copyright office with the FCC. As new administrations come in, the old policies are going to go out and the new policies are going to go in. Again, nothing new, just very blatant now. Exactly. And I think we'll see lots more oversight and um, investigation of possible corruption as the House Democrats take the House in the 116th Congress as well. They've promised lots of investigations uh, in that front. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Emily. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. It's always fun. All right. Emily is the Director of Government Relations at the American Association of Law Libraries. We'll talk to you next month when we have a new Congress. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye. So very quickly before we roll into our interview with Marcy Borgel-Shunk, um, I do want to say that you know, regardless of your political slant, there is a need to be in contact with anyone who thinks that government and legal information is something that needs to be protected and made available to the public. So it reminds me when I was back in my previous firm and someone asked the managing partner if the firm was supportive of Democrats or Republicans, and his answer was always, hey, we work with whoever's in charge at the time. So I'm glad Emily is there in D.C. working with everyone to protect our access to justice and government information issues. Yeah, don't take your rights for granted, people. In this day and age of 24-hour news cycle, make sure you take the time and use the resources you have to be aware of what your government's doing. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our interview with Marcy Borgel-Shunk. For those who are looking at ways to expand leadership training in your law firm or within any of your organizations, this is an interview for you. Let's go. Today's guest is Marcy Borgel-Shunk, president and founder of the Tilt Institute. Thanks for joining us today, Marcy. My pleasure. It's glad to be here. So Marcy and I go back a number of years when we would bounce competitive intelligence stories off of each other and how law firms implemented CI in the overall legal operations. Actually, one of the funniest meetings that we had was trying to find out which tree birds in, or tree beards in <laughs> the tunnel that we were supposed to meet at. I think uh, we I ended up going to three different ones before I finally found the one that, uh, that Marcy was sitting at, very patiently waiting on me. She does a great job with people who are in charge to actually learn leadership skills. So Marcy, can you tell us a little bit about the mission of the Tilt Institute and how you got it started? As you know, through our conversations, um, I'm a bit of a data geek. So I have started off doing economic analysis. I've been working with data for years and years. And one of the things that I noticed is, you know, you can put a lot of data and information in front of law firms, but there was a lack of, I guess, two things. One was there was a lack of analysis of some of that data and how to put it all together and bring it to the next level. Then there was also, you know, once you had a good analysis, I'm not sure that, you know, there was a whole lot of understanding as to what to do with it. The Tilt Institute is very much about helping law firms transform this wealth of data into insights 
that they can utilize. And then from there, helping them with the skills that they need to then implement on whatever it is that they've learned from the analysis. I think as researchers, we understand the issue of you can give them a lot of data, but if you don't have the analysis behind it, it's just a stack of papers and and numbers in front of them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. And if they don't have the big picture, then you can't do the analysis right. (laughs) So according to your, the website that I looked at, you have three things that you specialize in, but I know that you do more than that. But you list planning and, and advisory, you have leadership programs, and then CI and analytics. So how would or do law firms or others in the legal industry benefit from these types of instructional paths? And again, I know you do more than instruction, but for those three, how, how do they benefit? I think one of the things I see law firms do frequently is work in, in a siloed fashion. So if they have an issue that they're trying to tackle, they'll focus on associate retention or they'll focus on pricing profitability and project management without looking at how everything is interconnected, how clients play into it, how culture plays in, how the talent model plays in, just all of the pieces. So the the intent is to give them the tools to bring it all together. So the analysis of the data. So you're using internal and external and putting it together. I know you're familiar with this as little puzzle pieces until you can finally see the big picture. Then from there, how can you utilize that information to inform strategy and planning? Then once you have that, what are the leadership skills and the change management techniques you need to execute on what you've learned? from that data. Depending on which firm I'm working with and you know where they are along that spectrum, what services I provide will, will vary based on that. So you mentioned you mentioned culture. It's a phrase I hear a lot, but I'm just I, I would be curious to see how do you define what is culture in a firm? And do you think culture amongst the leaders of the firm is the same thing as culture amongst the associates and non-leaders of the firm? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question. (laughs) So it's interesting. Over the past several years, I I have a certification in human synergistics international, a cultural analysis or cultural assessment tool. And conceptually, the way that they look at culture, I think is a bit different than the traditional law firm way of looking at it, which is, you know, we're collegial and we're collaborative and everybody gets along. They look at it much more from this conceptual academic model where you have, you need a sense of security to start. And then from there, you need some shared vulnerability. And then from there, you have a shared purpose. And that's where you start to see firms that perform well are at that higher level, right? You get that excellence, you get that level of performance. Well, not surprisingly, when you do these analyses and assessments of law firms, and I've done dozens of them, there are a few things that are somewhat unique to law firms. One is they tend to have very high perfectionist tendencies, right? So that inevitably means that taking steps towards innovation, which is something everybody's talking about these days, is challenging because if you can't fail, you can't innovate. And then to your point, Greg, the whole concept of does everybody in the firm experience the same culture? No, right? There's typically differences and the differences can stem from, they can come from different offices or different practice areas where you have different leaders in position, uh, or they can stem from what you were intimating, which is your partners typically have a very different cultural experience at the law firm than the associates do and that the administrative professional staff does. So you see distinct cultures showing up in the law firms dependent on what role they're playing. That's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, what's interesting about what you said earlier, it's like, it's, it seems more of sort of the corporate model where 
okay, shared security, shared vulnerabilities, like everybody is moving in the same direction, because that's where they want to go. But in, in law firms, oftentimes, you know, that there's not one interest, you kind of have, you, know, you talked about silos, and it, it's kind of a, a bunch of somebody is, has, has explained it to me as like, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of individuals working together. And so everybody has different interests. And I would imagine that is, is quite a bit of a challenge if you're trying to implement that type of model where sort of everybody's, you know, moving with one common goal. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So on leadership in the law firm, how early in an attorney's career should they be exposed to leadership training? Day one. <laughs> I I think that many colleges and law schools have some support systems in place to start the process of talking about leadership. And, you know, many colleges look for leadership skills when they're bringing students in. So I think it's something that is advantageous at any level. And I think that for law firms to want to get people in positions, I think there's a lot of upcoming leadership transitions. And I can't tell you how many firms are saying, oh, you know, we're two or three years away from our next managing partner. And we don't know who that person is. And we don't think anybody has the right leadership skills for it. And you're saying, well, it's not too late, certainly, but, you know, maybe we should have thought about this a little bit sooner. So I think there is an emphasis now on starting leadership programs earlier in their careers, earlier in the careers of, of any lawyers or professionals at the firms, and giving them the tools that they need in order to be successful. And that may be very different, you know, in terms of what it looks like for a first year associate versus what it looks like for an incoming practice group leader. But I think the core element and, and why it's so important to start early is the self-awareness component is so vital. If you can get people to start thinking early on about self-awareness, maybe initially people aren't open to the concept. <laughs> so give them a few years to get used to it and, become, and increase that level of self-awareness. It certainly helps over time create better leaders. I was wondering, you know, when working with, with your clients, it's like, do you find that there are different ideas of, of what leadership is? And is that a challenge? <sighs> Yes, there are. <laughs> I think everybody has their own ideas for what leadership is. And I think that there are even in the academic sphere, there are different perspectives on what it takes to be a leader. And it changes over time. So you've got people that are more adherent to the kind of militaristic model of leadership that are about discipline and coordination. And and there is a teamwork component there as well. There are newer models that are really focused on vulnerability and opening up and drawing connections. And there's definitely research out there that suggests that some models are more effective than others, but I do believe that there are differences of opinion as to what that looks like. And some of them are even generational. The hierarchical models of the, the baby boomer generation are giving way to these more collaborative models, and even those generational differences impact you know, what leaders need to look like and how they need to interact. And I would imagine sort of the culture of the organization really plays a big part in how they maneuver that between those generations. Without question. Without question, I think, and there's, you know, there's more generations in the workforce today than there were decades ago. So we're dealing with different personalities, different forms of communication, which I think is probably one of the biggest challenges is, you know, the way people communicated in the baby boomer generation is so different from the way the millennials communicate with one another that it's even difficult to talk about the differences. What would you say would be the difference between, say, leadership training and, say, business development training? Do you think law firms see those as the same side of the coin or are are they different types of skill sets? I personally think that they're distinct 
skill sets. I do think that there's overlap. I think that knowing, you know, having good leadership skills can be incredibly advantageous in business development because part of leadership is about creating relationships with people and how to influence and interact with other people. And so if you can create those connections, that will serve you well in business development. In business development, however, I think the focus of business development isn't just about influencing other people. There's a lot of other straight sales skills that are outside of the leadership realm in terms of training. So I'm hoping that firms are coming at them distinctly. I think they've probably been putting more emphasis uh, in the past decade or so on the business development side than on the leadership side. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Uh, In other words, can partners, managing partners, uh, equity partners who have been at a firm for you know decades, can they still learn leadership skills? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the true, <laughs> the true consulting response here. Uh, it depends. <laughs> That's a good answer for anything. <laughs> Start there. It is. It's truly individual. I think if people are are open and willing to learn and are open to coaching and are open to hearing new concepts and ideas, they can continue learning forever. If they are people that are not open to hearing that there are different ways that they could be approaching others or that something that they are doing needs to change, then no, that you're going to struggle to to transform those people into better leaders. You've sort of written about the the impact of millennials, so like how their work style is reflective of what clients want and how it's changing the way we work. We've had a few discussions about millennials on this podcast, you know, how they learn, what they need to know, you know, but can you tell us, and maybe this is part of the leadership discussion, maybe not, but, you know, can you tell us, you know, what we you know, who are not millennials, <laughs> you know, who were, you know, what we're learning from them and how do we need to just to be relevant in the future? Mm, I love that question. I think one of the things that millennials advocate, I think some Gen Xers do as well, is the concept of working smarter and not harder. That really defines the generation in terms of how they approach life and how they approach their work. And I think that one of the big challenges in law firms is many are still tied very much to the billable hour. So there is a direct conflict between the way that millennials prefer to work and the way that law firms measure performance, right? I anticipate I'm starting to see law firms that are understanding that there is there's that dilemma and that they need to be more open and willing to adapt to some extent. Unfortunately, that adaptation sometimes comes in the form of, oh, you can work home from home one day a month. You know? and, and that's not going to cut it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks! <laughs> yeah, I think it is forcing, it, both the millennial generation and clients are forcing law firms to revisit how they measure success and how they manage performance. And I think that's just critical and essential to getting us to, you know, as an as an industry, to where we need to be in order to retain competitiveness, really. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, the ones who can, can lead through that are going to be the ones that are successful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of talking two different languages between what people want and what leaders are necessarily willing to, to give, such as the, oh, we'll let you work from home one day, one day a month. Congratulations. <laughs> are the leaders and those that they lead, are they on two different levels? Are they, what is it that people are asking for that you think eventually those leaders are going to give in, but they're, they're digging in now and, and not doing? 
Mm-hmm. I think the biggest difference in perspective I hear is around, and I won't even characterize it as a seat at the table because I don't think that's what it is. I think it's about having a voice and being heard. It was interesting. I saw a, a managing partner panel uh, last year that involved, it was Gen X and a millennial panel of managing partners. And they were talking about the differences in upbringing. And the suggestion was, you know, we don't want to be sitting there alongside the leaders making the decisions with them. But we grew up sitting around the dinner table talking about, you know, maybe making choices about what we were going to do over the weekend. Did that mean that we had the ultimate decision making authority in the house? No, it meant that we felt heard and that we felt that we were participating in the decision and in the process. And I think that's very much where we are right now. There needs to be more opportunities for people to participate in what's going on at the firm and for an increased level, I guess, of the transparency as to, you know, what is the firm looking to accomplish and how are they going to get there and what are they doing differently? I think if we can start getting more transparent and more communication, that will help to alleviate some of the challenges that we're having right now. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier. You know, you had been talking about the the billable hour, and I know you've you've written about the the pyramid uh, power structure of law firms that you know we're all familiar with. And you know, you've said it may be time for its retirement based on the growing disconnect between hours work and revenue generated. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the pyramid and why it's breaking down and what's rising in its place? Sure. So I think the traditional pyramid was very much based on we need lots of people at a different level of of lawyers specifically, right? So it was built very much on we need lots of baby lawyers to support the next level of lawyers and we're going to get up and we'll have, you know, just a single partner at the top who's generating business. A number of things have happened. I think one of them, which is most significant and relevant maybe to, to us, is data has come into play and given clients the ability to have a better understanding of what work is worth to them, it has started to spread out the legal services spectrum. So the way I look at it is historically, it was almost you know, a bell curve and everything was some, somewhere in the middle. Clients had a really good understanding of what was at the company, a really good sense of what was routine or nuisance work. But for the most part, they just really looked to their law firms to say what was going on in the middle. Over time, that has spread out. It has flattened. We see an uptick of high-end work where clients are looking for high touch and they want a good experience and they're willing to pay more. And then we see more at the other end of the spectrum bubbling up where clients know this really isn't something of high value to me. Either I'm going to move it in-house or I want you to give it to me on a fixed fee or I want to look at a managed services company. I mean, there's so many different ways that they can handle that type of work. So it's just changed the the legal services spectrum and therefore created, in my opinion, a need for a different model dependent on what the services you're looking to provide. Mm-hmm. But I don't think a law firm holistically, if they're servicing multiple areas, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all model for that. I think that the operational elements of a law firm are going to become increasingly complex. And if you want to continue to be full service, you need to be able to have that complexity exist within your firm. You need to have some areas that are high-end and that are modeled to deliver high-end services and others that are using business professionals or using technology or using something else to help change how that, that service is being delivered to clients. 
There's some discussion out there, though, that, that clients seek a, a custom relationship that's that's tailored to their needs. You know, they want continuity. They want a history of understanding of their business relationships with firms. So how do you respond to those who seek that interconnectedness in, you know, the legal Zoom sort of world? You know, is there room for both models? And who are the winners and losers in this struggle? Mm-hmm. Without question, I think there is room for both. And I do think the one-size-fits-one model of of client service is there, and there are plenty of clients that fall into that category. And I think those are the clients that are going to be more valued. They're going to have higher-end work. They're going to tend to be more loyal. But you'll also, there'll also be this tremendous opportunity. I mean, we're creating, in some respects, a market for legal services. People like LegalZoom are creating a market for legal services for people that didn't even buy them previously, right? So we're expanding the market in some respects if you look really broadly. But then there's also going to be different services and different types of work that require different models. It's really just going to come down to better understanding who our clients are, what the market is, and which brings us back, I guess, to the beginning of the conversation, which is having all of exactly. that information. <laughs> I was just thinking that as you were saying, and it's like, we're going back to data. <laughs> yes, yes, going back to data. <laughs> Let me spin that question just a little bit, because clients are looking for that interconnectedness and not necessarily a traditional client-lawyer relationship, but also internally with the lawyers, not everyone is looking for that traditional path to partnership, path to equity partnership. And there's all kinds of alternative paths that are out there. Are, are you seeing any firms doing you know, good deeds, I, I would say, on this kind of thing, uh, where they're taking advantage of people that don't necessarily want to take that traditional path, but they're still giving them the leadership roles to do or a, a different path to where they feel like they're actually progressing and doing good work and, and having good outcomes. Are there any good examples out there? I think there are. I think there are plenty of examples of firms that are finding ways to integrate talented people into their model that doesn't adhere to the traditional, you know, associate to partner path. I know one of the Magic Circle firms has, they've started hiring people straight out of law school into technology roles. So lawyers with some kind of technology skills or background so that they're actually taking an entirely different path or career path, so to speak. Um, There are some firms that are creating straight out of law school roles that say, you know what, you don't want to be an associate, you don't want to follow that partner path, but you are interested in practicing and you want a lighter load, sure, we'll create an entirely different set of parameters for this group of lawyers, but just know that unless you express interest at a later date and change your expectations, that you know, you're know you not on the, the partnership path or partnership track. So I think they are creating different opportunities. I've also seen some firms, and this warms my heart, reduce the requirements for hours, either for senior associates or, or partners, and allow them to pursue something new and innovative. So, you know, we're only going to require a certain number of hours from you. You go off and make this happen. And this is typically something new and exciting, you know, maybe built around technology or built around a different kind of service model. Those are fun, but they tend to be a little bit more uh, one-off situations as far as I've seen as, a, as opposed to something that's more systemic. 
And, and I'm assuming the the compensation model is a little different on those roles. It can be, yes. So yes, I mean, for the first years that are coming in and not doing the the partnership track, for sure. For the partners that are going off and trying something different, I think it's more of a timeline based situation. So they retain their compensation for a period of time with the expectation that the investment will pay off. Similarly to you know, if you if a partner opens a new office, you don't expect it to be successful in the first year or two. So you give them a little bit of leeway. One of the things that I heard, and this this is really anecdotal, but I've actually heard it across multiple law firms, was every time the base salary for associates goes up, like this year, 190, 195, the associates love the number, but they're also very fearful, especially the second years and third years, about the expectations of, okay, you know, your salary's going up. That means your hours are going to go up. It's not you're going to get paid more to do the same. You're going to pay more. You're going to work more. And there's a stress level that I, I've seen from that. Now, don't get me wrong. They didn't take, you know, they didn't take less money. But <laughs> but at the same time, they were, they were uh, I think there was more of a stress level on there. So I think with smart firms are looking at alternative paths and giving associates and partners different tracks to take that still take advantage of them and, you know, with their great legal skills and their leadership skills, but a good trade-off back and forth on that. So again, anecdotal as far as I can tell, but the money's there, but the work is also the kind of run parallel. Mm-hmm. And it's stressful. And I think one of the risks of that whole concept, even creating different paths is culturally right now within the law firms, it requires a shift in mindset so that you're not treating people who are not on the partnership path as second class citizens, which tends to be historically the model. All right. Well, I want to thank Marcy Borgelschunk for joining us today. She is the president and founder of the Tilt Institute. Thanks again for joining us, Marcy. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you, Marcy. It's been great. So Marlene, I like the way that she described that some of the, of the needs of younger lawyers are not necessarily wanting to have a seat at the table in a way that they are making the decisions, but rather that they are wanting representation and a voice in the discussion. So they want to contribute, they want to be heard, they want to be respected, and they really want to understand the direction that the law firm is taking. So I think uh, she mentioned something about transparency well, you know, that's a that's a novel concept. <laughs> yeah, it seems there there was a main theme running through the discussion of, of collaboration and communication. And uh, that seems like a common theme with a lot of our guests. And, you know, why is that such a challenge? You know, what do you think, listeners? I mean, I'm sure you have some opinions out there. Um, you know, I think as, as millennials have more of an impact on the workforce, it may almost force the issue since, you know, they like transparency and collaboration. And I like how Marcy notes that there's room for different models of legal practice and that firms have to be open to that. You know, for some reason, that makes me more hopeful for our profession. Um, you know, sure, it's going to rock some of the my work is bespoke worlds. But, you know, in the end, it may open up more opportunities for firms, attorneys and legal professionals and and better serve clients. So thanks to all of you listeners of the Geek in Review. Don't forget to click the subscribe button on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen, as well as rate and review the Geek in Review so that others can find us. Your comments really do help others find us. And also, don't forget to tell your third cousin's spouse to subscribe to the Geek in Review and to get his own damn lawyer.
Absolutely. <laughs> you you can tweet us at at GayBauerM or at Glambert if you have any comments or suggestions. And once again, thanks to our guest today, Emily Feltrin from AAWL and Marcy Borgel-Shunk from Tilt Institute. Thank you both. And as always, thanks to Jerry David DeSicca for his original music. Jerry's touring in California, so if you're out that way, go check him out. Yeah, go check him out. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Greg. Happy holidays, everybody. See you all the first of the year. All right. See you and have a happy new year. Wassall, y'all. Bye. Devil